you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Today our text will be verses 14 through 21, so we will finish out chapter 4 today. The title of the sermon this morning is The Loving Correction of a Spiritual Father. The Loving Correction of a Spiritual Father, and the key words are admonish, Imitate and Father. As we've seen last week, Paul is beginning to bring his initial uh, correction and, uh, and confrontation of this church to a, to a head. Uh, the, the language and the, the, the spirit of his rebuke and confrontation was very strong last week as he began to uh, to, to show them that they're the ones who are having the problem, that him, he and Apollos and the, the other uh, disciples uh, and the other leaders that God had raised up to begin this work in this, in this city of Corinth were all speaking the same message. The message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified was the common message amongst them all. And there was no division amongst the leaders, but there was division in this church. And that is what he had set out to begin to, to correct from the outset because he has... Many other issues he's going to deal with them. We're going to start with that in our next message in a few weeks where we get into chapter 5, and he now begins to deal with some of these specific issues that they were having. But the first thing that he had to, to, to work on and fix amongst these people was their division amongst each other and the way they were dividing themselves up according to their favorite preacher and speaker. <laughs> and so he, he, he really turned up the screws on them, so to speak, last week. He really went for the jugular with them as he as he began to tell them that they were the ones who were puffed up. They were the ones who were in error. They were the ones who had turned away uh, from the message and the wisdom of Christ crucified. And so he really, he really came down hard on them. Like a good father would on an erring child, he came down very hard on them because there is, this issue has to be dealt with. This issue has to be corrected if there's going to be any progress going forward in any other issues that they deal with. And so... He came down pretty hard on them. But like any good pastor, any good father, uh, any good spiritual leader, any good Christian, uh, Paul recognizes that, that discipline apart from love is not true discipline. It's not true uh, biblical uh, confrontation, uh, the way God wants us to deal with issues. And so he, he, he brings it back down uh, in, in the last few words of this, uh, this chapter to show them once again how much he does love them and why he's doing this. For their benefit. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at the, the loving correction that their spiritual father, the Apostle Paul, is bringing to these people. So I want to read <coughs> verses 14 through 21 and then we'll begin to, to tear it apart a little bit. Verse 14 I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, 
or with love in a spirit of gentleness. And so we see here the tone has changed a little bit from the, the previous section that we looked at. Uh, it's much more, much more personal, much more familiar, much more parental in its tone. And so that's the one thing that Paul is trying to address with them here as he wants to finally end this dialogue over the divisions that are happening in this place. And so as we look at Paul's example of a good spiritual father, (laughs) we're going to see three things that he's doing here. First of all, we're going to look at the motive of his correction and what what he's trying to do. We're going to look at the model that he uses, and then we're going to look at the manner of his correction. And so the first thing we will look at in verses 14 and 15 is the motive behind Paul's correction and why he's doing this. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. What things? What things is he talking about? Well, uh, broadly, he's talking about everything he's wrote up to this point, all of chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, where he's beginning to confront their divisions and, and how they're beginning to separate them, themselves according to uh, their favorite apostle or teacher. Uh, and so these things are really what he's talking about. But most specifically, I think he's talking about is that the, the divisions that have cropped up amongst the, 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 the apostles who had founded the church. And specifically, I think he's confronting their attitude towards him. And that's what we've seen last week, that Paul has really had to begin to confront them because he's the one who's going to be addressing them going forward and all these other issues that they've got to get worked out. And so they need to be able to receive his instruction. And so if there's tension between them and him, if they don't see him as as one of their leaders, and they don't have any respect for him, they're not going to receive any of the teaching that he's going to bring going forward. And so that's what things he's talking about. Everything that he's talked about at this point, but mainly the division that exists amongst the leaders, that uh, the, their division according to their leaders. And so he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. And so you see first part, the, the, the negative side of what, what his motive behind this. He doesn't want to shame them. He says, I do not want to shame you. Um, a sec- there is a time when shame is good because that's, that's the question we ask. Okay, should we never be ashamed? And so I think there is a time when shame is good. Paul himself wrote to the Thessalonians in Second Thessalonians, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. And so in that sense, I think Paul is saying you should be ashamed. If you're not following what we write in, these, in this letter, if you're not following God's will, if you're, if you're out of step with God's word, you should be ashamed of that. But Paul in here, as he's trying to get back into a familiar state with these people in a, in a, in a, in a parental state, he's saying, I don't want to create in you that shame. You, the shame may exist if you are convicted by your sin and the, and the things that you're doing wrong and you become shamed of that. That is fine. But, I, but my purpose is not to shame you. And so we see the good father coming out in Paul there. Um, uh, Paul clearly teaches us in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's talking about a father's relationship to his children, a, a, a biological father to his biological children. He says in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And he says in Colossians 3, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And so we know that that's clearly a, a, a teaching to tell us that uh, when we are disciplining our children, fathers or mothers as well, our goal should not be to shame them because that's not what's going to produce uh, the, the fruit that we're looking for, the growth that we're looking for from them. Shame does not produce anything but a, a, an ashamed person. 
we want to when we're when we're teaching our children, we want to appeal to their consciences because if they're not going to learn right from wrong and they're not going to be convicted by their sin, what will they do when they leave our home? They will simply go back to what they want to do because now the element of the, the, the discipline that had been brought by their parents for all the years are now been removed. And so if we're not appealing to their conscience, if we're not helping them to grow in their understanding of the Word of God in, in the sense that they, they will feel ashamed on their own, when they're out of step with God, then we are not being good parents. And Paul is, understands that here. With these people, he says, I don't want to make you ashamed. That's not my motive. But what is his motive? He says, but I want to admonish you as my beloved children. His motive, his motive is to admonish them. That's the Greek word, notheteo, is where we get the word nothetic. You may have heard us talking about that some around here lately when we're getting... Uh, some of us are getting training in nothetic biblical counseling, and that's really just uh, to, to take a, a, a big Greek word and just say it's really just applying the Bible and using the Bible to warn people and to admonish people to walk in step with God. It's, it's intensified discipleship in the Word of God is what it is. And so Paul here is saying, that's what I'm here to do with you today. I'm here to admonish you. I'm here to warn you. I'm here to instruct you in the way that you should go. That is his motive. And he says in verse 15, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Some of your translations may say 10,000 instructors, I think is in the, in the New King James and King James. Uh, that's, it's really just a, a, a huge number that Paul puts out there to say, uh, you have countless guides in Christ. That's the Greek word, uh, pedag- let me see if I can pronounce this, pedagogos. It's really what that was in simple terms. It was a household slave or a hired freedman that was there to, to kind of watch over the children. The father would be busy uh, with his affairs of business or whatever it was, and the pedagogue would be the one who, would, who his job would be kind of like the butler. He would be watching over the child from morning till night. He would be making sure the child got to school on time, got dressed in the morning, making sure the child didn't step out of line during the day. Uh, he would be making sure the child would get home and do, do whatever was co- the chores or whatever. And so and that's, that's what a pedagogue would do with the child. He was the child's tutor in conduct and academics, and he also guarded the child from danger. And so we see here Paul is exaggerating this number. He's saying you have countless or tens of thousands uh, of, of guides uh, a child could have. And so but Paul, what Paul is doing here by do, using this huge number, of using this exaggeration, he's trying to drive home the point that the father would be much closer to these, to these, individual, these children than the pedagogos would. The father naturally would have a greater, a greater love for the child than a pedagogue would. And the father there is the Greek word petar, which is translated father, was used to describe a biological father, a father who had produced an offspring, a family of his own, an ancestor of a lineage of people. And so with that in mind, you see what the idea here is that Paul is saying that I am, I am in a sense, your spiritual father because I was the one that God used to bring you to, to salvation, to bring you to rebirth, to birth in Christ. And so I, in that sense, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, not because of my wisdom, not because of my understanding, but through the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified that I preach to you at the very beginning. Uh, they came to know Jesus as their savior. And so through that, I am, I am in a sense, your spiritual father. God used me to birth you into the spiritual kingdom. 
And so what he's saying there is that for though you could have countless guides, you could have innumerable, thousands and tens of thousands of instructors and tutors in God's Word, none of them will compare to the love and care and kindness and, uh, of your Father. And we all understand that. Nobody has more of a love for his child than the parent does, right? They may have many instructors. They may have many teachers in school. But none of them compare with the father and the mother and the love and the, and the desire that they have to grow for their child to grow. And so in that sense, the father would have a more special relationship than a God. And that's what, again, keep in mind what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to confront them because they don't view him as that. They see him as whatever. They don't think that he's, he's the one they should be listening to. They, they begin to divide up amongst different people. And so Paul is confronting them and saying, wait a minute, I'm the one, remember, who brought the gospel to you. I'm the one that God used to, to bring you the message of Jesus Christ. And it was through that ministry, through, that, through God's blessing of that, that you came to know Jesus as Savior. And now you're turning away from me. Now you're turning to these other guides uh, who are not really your father. They may love you. They may, have, they may be instructing you in the right way. They may not. But I have always had a heart from you. My, my goal and my desire for you has always been for your spiritual benefit. And so Paul here is showing them very clear and up front that his motive is for love, is love towards them. His motive is that they would be admonished, that they would be encouraged, they would be instructed as, as his beloved children. And so that is his motive that he brings to them. The next thing we see is the model that he uses to correct. <coughs> he says there in verse 16 and 17, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Let's look at that first verse. Be imitators of me. What is he talking about there? Well, Paul brought, as I said, Paul brought the gospel to the Corinthians. He witnessed their spiritual birth. He taught them the Christian way of life. He urged them to follow Christ and demonstrated his own unwavering love for them. Now he directs them to become his imitators and adopt his personal testimony of Christ. The word imitate there is the Greek word mementos is where we get the word mimic. You know what a, a mime is? Is somebody who's out there doing all this stuff here, and he's quiet, and you know, you, and, and a, or a mimic is like, you know, you, you ever played that game when you're a kid, and you say, you know, don't talk to me, and they say, well, don't talk to me, or no, 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 and they they just repeat it back to you, back and forth. It drives you crazy, right? That's what a mimic does. He's just he's imitating the things that you do, and so Paul is using that word here. He's saying, I urge you then, imitate me. And is this, this is not a foreign concept to Paul. He's, he's said this many times in several of his other letters that he wrote. He, he says in, in, um, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In Philippians 4, 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.7, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. And so clearly we see Paul is laying out this, uh, this idea that you should mimic me, you should act to me, follow me, imitate me. And he also says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now he begins to lay it out for why he says you should imitate me. 
Imitate me because I imitate Christ. Don't imitate me because I'm the guy who's arrived, because I'm the guy who knows everything, because I'm the greatest apostle. That's not why you imitate me. You imitate me because I am imitating Christ. You follow me as I follow Christ. So why did he say that? Why didn't he just say, imitate Christ? Because that's what he's doing. Why don't he just say, well, why don't you just imitate Christ? Why did he put himself in the mix? Well, there's a couple of reasons I think we, we can see that. It's the first thing, I think, is the obvious, is they really didn't have the full, closed New Testament canon that we have today. You know, some of the things that they were learning about Jesus and knew about Jesus was being passed on to them through oral preaching and teaching and things like that. But they didn't have probably the, the opportunity to really study and, and, and see the things that Jesus did. And so it's better, for Paul, Paul, it's better for Paul to say, imitate me as I'm imitating Christ, because Paul and all the other apostles had really learned from the very feet of Christ. Paul being an apostle out of season, but nonetheless, he learned from Christ. And so in that sense, since they didn't have the full revelation of the New Testament as of yet, they could follow the 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 God-ordained apostles of the church, the founders of the church, those are the ones that he could imitate because they would be the ones who would be imitating Christ. And so that's one reason. A second reason, I think, is because Paul could say this and really mean it because his life was devoted to following Christ. He was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, Paul was not perfect. We know that. He called himself the chief of sinners. He says that the things that I wish I could do, I don't find myself doing. The things I hate, those are the things I do. He bemoaned the sin in his life. He was not perfect, but he was a devoted follower of Christ. He was running the race with Christ. And so in that sense, Paul could say, in the sense that I am following Christ and I am imitating me, you can follow me. You can imitate me. And then in verse 17, he says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. And so why does, who is this Timothy? Well, Timothy was Paul's prodigy. We know that he was a young man that was converted uh, by Paul, under Paul's teaching, rather. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a young man who had a, a Jewish mother and, a, and a, uh, a Greek or Roman father. And so... He learned from his mother and his grandmother the scriptures uh, at a very young age. But, but no doubt when Timothy was converted to Christ under Paul's ministry, he immediately attached himself to Paul. And Paul attached himself to Timothy. And they began to work that relationship of a father and son. And so uh, uh, Timothy had fully understood Paul's teaching. And the reason why Paul could say, I send you Timothy was because Paul could confidently send Timothy because Timothy was imitating Paul who was imitating Christ. He wouldn't just send Timothy with his own ideas and with his own ways. He sent Timothy because he had full confidence in Timothy that he would lead the people as Paul would if he would be there himself. And so Paul (coughs) confidently says, I send you, Timothy, my beloved, faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ to bring it to your understanding, to bring it to your remembrance of the things that I did teach you uh, when I was here. When he was founding the church, he said, I want to rem- I'm going to send Timothy to remind you of those ways. And what that tells us is that Paul's life and Timothy's life also was consistent with what they taught. They were consistent with what they taught. The message he taught was consistent also everywhere that he went because he says, as I teach them everywhere in every church. 
And so we see here that the model Paul is putting forth is not just his own ideas or Timothy's own ideas. He's saying, the things that I'm instructing you to do, the wisdom that I have encouraged you and challenged you to adopt, the wisdom of Christ crucified, the admonition and the warning I have given you to turn away from man's wisdom, the wisdom of this world, is the, is the same thing that I have been telling and instructing every other church that I go to, and it's the same thing that I live and my brother Timothy lives as well. And so we see consistency in our, in our two brothers there, and so Paul can confidently come to them with that model. He's saying, I'm admonishing you, I'm warning you, I'm warning you as my beloved children. I'm not just going to sit here and tell you what to do. It's not as a do as I say and not as I do. He's saying it's do as I say and as I do. What Paul is saying is, you know, we've, we've heard the, uh, the saying that a picture is worth a thousand words, and that's probably true in many ways. But one of the things Paul understood is that an example is worth a thousand pictures. A good godly example is worth far more than even a thousand pictures could bring. And so Paul is bringing, even though everything that he does is grounded in the scriptures, grounded in the teachings that he brings, he's giving them this example that they can see it being worked out in real, real life. It's not as if I'm just going to come here and teach you what to do and then I'm going to ignore it myself and expect you to do it. No. His model is live it as I live it. I will not, I will not require anything of you that I would not require of myself. And so Paul here is giving them a godly example and a godly model to follow in himself and in Timothy. And then the last thing I want us to look at is in verses 18 through 21. The manner of the correction that Paul uses. And really this is where it gets probably pretty tough at the end. Because Paul, like any good father would cannot just ignore sin. You can instruct it. You can admonish it. You can warn. You can encourage. But sometimes you have to discipline. Sometimes you have to bring out the rod. And that's what he says. He says in verse 18 through 21, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And so Paul here is beginning to confront very heavily. The word arrogant there is the same word we looked at last week. It means to be puffed up with hot air. It means to be filled with pride in your own abilities and your own understandings that you were the one who's right. Some of these Corinthians who were causing trouble were emboldened because they didn't think Paul had the guts to confront them. Sending Timothy was probably proof to them that he wasn't coming and he didn't have the guts to confront them because he says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. And so he's setting the record straight. He's saying, I will come to you soon. But he puts in that caveat, if the Lord wills, Paul knew that everything that he does, everything that he does in life and ministry was according to God's will. He doesn't know what that is up front. He just simply does what, what he knows God has encouraged him, what God has instructed him to do. And if and if the Lord dictates and directs him in other directions, he will make adjustments as needed. And that's why he says, if the Lord wills, I will come to you soon. And why? So I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Unrepentant sin cannot be just swept under the rug and ignored. It must be dealt with. And so we see Paul here, the spiritual father that he is, disciplining his erring teeth. 
Paul is showing his, a little bit of teeth here. He's calling their bluff. He is coming to see them if the Lord wills. And when he comes, he will see if their power is backed up, if their talk, rather, is backed up with power. Now, what kind of power is he talking about? Well, I don't think he's really talking about the type of power that the world thinks about, you know, like uh, prestige and honor and glory and all those things. That's not really what he's talking about. He means the power in the sense that comes from the gospel itself. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. And then to the, to the church of Rome he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. And so Paul's coming to them was to see whether the kind of power that was being demonstrated by them amongst them and the people was being demonstrated really in just arrogant talk or was it being demonstrated in the power of the gospel of being present in people and seeing people converted and saved and their lives being transformed. That's what he's looking for because that's what type of power the kingdom of God is about. And so he says the kingdom of power the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power in that type of power that transforms lives. And so Paul knows that if I come and that's what's actually happening then 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 they're right because the power power of God is at work transforming lives. But if that's not what's happening if it's just arrogant talk if it's just people who are divided and fleshy and carnal acting then the power of the gospel is not there. It is just the power of of, of worldly wisdom. The power of the gospel is present when people are humble. The power of the gospel is present when people are joyful. The power of the gospel is present when people are at peace with one another. And when I mean peace with one another, it does not mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of peace in the midst of conflict. It means that when conflict arises, people understand that, uh, that we should put others above ourselves and that I should see my sin as grosser than anyone else's on the planet. And so the power of the gospel will help me to resolve that conflict. The power of the gospel is present when people are patient with one another, when we give one another the benefit of the doubt, when we're patient to wait on God to correct wrongs, the power of the gospel is present when people are kind to one another and loving to one another. These people were not being kind and loving to Paul and no doubt to one another in their, in their camps that they had drawn up amongst themselves. They were fighting and bickering amongst each other about who was the greatest. And so there was no love there. There was no kindness there to one another. And the power of the gospel is present when people have self-control over themselves. The first discipline that happens to us it should not be the discipline of a brother coming to us. It should be the discipline of the Holy Spirit convicting our conscience and, straightening, and us straightening our own selves out. That's what self-control is all about. We sin every day, but we, all, we, but we respond to that sin by saying, by being repentant, by turning from it and turning back to God. And so Paul is saying here that that's what I'm looking for. I'm coming to you, and that's what I'm looking for. I'm, if the Lord wills, I'm coming to see what type of talk you are bringing. If it is the talk of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, then I will see these things happening. 
But if I come and I see a bunch of divided people and a bunch of carnal acting people and a bunch of people who, who hate each other, then I know that that is not the power of the gospel. And I will bring the discipline to that. And he gives them a choice. Like a good counselor, he, gives, he, makes it, he, he leans on them. You make the choice. I'm coming to you. Go ahead and get that out of the way. I'm coming. I'm not afraid. I'm coming to you. But what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? As, now, is Paul going to be the sheriff who, and walking tall with the big stick coming in there to whack some heads? No, that's not really what he's talking about. But spiritually speaking, that's exactly what he's going to be doing. He's going to be bringing the rod of a harsh rebuke, the rod of, of painful discipline. Discipline can be painful. The writer of Hebrews says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. <laughs> and so discipline can be painful. You know, our kids, whenever we spank their rear ends, they cry. But that's what they're supposed to do, right? It's supposed to be painful so that they remember what brought them to that instance, what brought them to that point so that they never, they never repeat that again. And so as we grow older, we, we don't get those same spankings, but we get spiritual spankings all the time. God is correcting us all the time. He's disciplining those He loves, as that same uh, context is talking about in Hebrews 11. And so He says, what, shall I, what, what do you wish? Do you want me to come with a rod? Because I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring that discipline rebuke that you need if that's really what I'm finding is going on here. I'm going to bring it. Or what, should I come with a love and a spirit of gentleness? That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do. He wants to arrive in this church and realize that these people received his correction and examined their own hearts and repented of their sin and, and resolved their relational problems. That's what he wants. That's what he's praying for. That's what he wants to come into. But he realizes that may not be the case. And if that's not the case, then I will bring the rebuke. I will not shy back. I will not turn away from the hard work that must come from the discipline that has to happen. And so Paul here is showing us very clearly that the manner that he brings is that of a spiritual father, that of one who loves these people. He calls them my beloved children. He loves them so much that he's willing to put them through pain of rebuke and correction because he loves them because he wants them to receive that peaceful fruit that comes on the other side of the discipline, right? That's what the, the Hebrews said, the, the, the passage said, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's what we're wanting, right? That's why we discipline our children. If we spank our children out of anger, we're not disciplining our children. We're, we're, we're creating children who are going to, to hate us and not follow anything we say. But if we're disciplining our children out of love because we have a, a, a desire to see the peaceful fruit of righteousness brought into their lives then that is true discipline and God will bless that. And so Paul understands that and he's saying, it's your choice, it's, your, it's up to you. You are my beloved children. I love you dearly. Now no doubt these people were saying some very nasty things about Paul. They were slandering his reputation, saying all kinds of ungodly things about him. But as a good father, he says, I'm setting all that aside. I, I, all I see is my love for you, and I'm coming to you as a loving spiritual father would to correct your errors. 
And if you receive it in the manner that you should, then things will be restored and we will be able to move forward. But if you will not, then the, then the rebuke will continue and the rod will get harsher. And so he was ready for that. And so in that sense, he was a courageous father. I think sometimes we shrink back from disciplining our children because we're cowardly. Is that not true? We think we're actually benefiting them, but we're actually tearing them up. We're causing more damage if we don't discipline them. And so Paul understood that. He's coming to them as their spiritual father for the result of bringing back restoration, bringing these people back into a correct walk with God. And so just in closing, I have a few uh, applicational questions I want to ask you and ask myself as well. Do you see yourself as a spiritual father? Are you a spiritual father? Do you take pleasure seeing your brothers and sisters fail? Do you take pleasure in seeing your brothers and sisters and fail? Do you look down on them when they do fail? Or do you admonish and warn them out of love for them? You see, this, there's, there's probably a primary application and a secondary application in this text we can look at this morning. Paul is dealing with the church in prim, primarily. He's dealing with problems in the church, and so he's coming to them as their spiritual father. And so in that sense, we can say, do, as I look out amongst you and as you look at me and as we look at each other, do you see yourself as a spiritual father in a relationship with these other people? Do you see yourself as being loving them and wanting to go to them if they need it and correcting them and calling and, and admonishing them and grieving over their sins as much as you grieve over yours? Do you admonish? Do we admonish one another? Do we warn one another when we're in sin? We say that covenant to each other every time we install a new member. If I be found in sin, I will in the most tender and affectionate manner point you back to the truth of God's Word, so help me God. Do we mean that? Are we warning one another? Another question, is your life worth imitating? Is your, and is your life and is my life worth imitating? As Paul put himself up as an example to these Corinthians to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, can you say the same thing? Are you putting yourselves out there and walking in fellowship with the Lord and, and, and growing in your understanding of, of the Scriptures and growing in sanctification to the point to where people can look to you as an example? And if you are not, then the question, why not? Because we must all be striving to be each other's example. And to go along with that, do you have a Paul or a Timothy in your own life? Paul was a mentor to Timothy. And so we need those same relationships. I need a mentor in my life. I need somebody that I can look up to that is encouraging me, that is, that is working in my life to help me grow. And at the same time, I need a Timothy in my life, somebody that I am investing my life into to help them grow. It's called reproductive discipleship. And so the question is, are we involved in it? Are we just, are we just satisfied to be just involved with our own little clique or our own little family or whatever it is and not be involved in anybody else's life? We should always be striving to be disciples with other people, to, to, to make disciples of other people. Now, we don't convert people, but God uses us to grow other people, to grow them and to help them to grow and progress in their sanctification. 
And so the challenge for us all is that are we investing our life in someone else? And then finally, are you courageous enough to confront sin in a brother or sister as you see it? That's a tough one. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'll just go tell the pastor and he'll do it. He'll go confront them, or I'll tell one of the deacons or somebody. You know, it, it shouldn't get to that point, right? We should all be in the trenches together helping one another out in our, in our, in our, our struggle with sin. The time, I think the reason we don't is because we're too prideful and, and we're too scared because we don't think we have enough biblical knowledge or, or whatever. We don't know what to say. A lot of times all you have to say is that I'm, I am afraid you are out of step with God. Can I please help you? If you say that in all humility as, as you recognize and are contemplating your own sin, then I think God uses that. And so Paul here is bringing this, this section to a close by, by helping these people to understand that, look, you don't like me. Many of you don't like me. Many of you are dividing out and going to other teachers or whatever. But I am your spiritual father, and my, my motive is that I love you. You are my beloved children. And I'm giving you an example to live by, and I've given you another example in my brother Timothy to live by. But when error is there and when... Sin goes unrepentant. It must be disciplined. It must be confronted. And Paul is here to do the courageous work. He's putting his reputation on the line. It's really, I mean, it's really, I mean, how's he going to instruct them going forward if they will not receive anything from him? If they will not receive this rebuke, this confrontation from him. How is he going to receive any, how are they going to benefit from the instructions that come later? They're not. There's also an application in here for us who are, who are fathers to children. Are we investing in our children? It's a great blessing to see a child get baptized today at a young age. Oh, if I could have been baptized and come to know Christ at 10 years old. Is that right? 10 years old? I mean, what a, what, how, many, how many sins may, may have been avoided in my life? How many mis, misdirected steps I may have, could have avoided? And God is sovereign over salvation, but, I, but God also blesses the means of godly parents who raise children up in the admonition of the Lord. And so we need to take seriously those of us who have children, small or great, that we have a, a tremendous role to play in their life, to educate them in the ways of the Scriptures, to admonish them and instruct them, to discipline them because we love them, because we want to see their lives produce a fruit of righteousness. And so our, my desire and my prayer for you, church, today is that we will be taking seriously each other's progressive sanctification, each other's walk with Christ, that we'll be watching out for one another and encouraging one another, instructing one another, warning one another, and if necessary, re rebuking one another. Not because I want to I feel superior to you or you feel superior to me, but because we love one another and we want to see God glorified. That's what Paul was all about here. He wasn't, he wasn't operating out of anger because these people had slandered him. God's name was being slandered. 
amongst these people. His church, we represent the God of the universe, the righteous, holy God of the universe. We represent Him, not just on Sunday, every second of every day. We represent Him. We wear His name. We must be serious about walking in holiness before Him. And so we need each other to do that. And so Paul has given us a great example here to follow. And my prayer for us is that we will heed that example and that we will all be a church that is striving to grow in holiness and love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the richness of your word and just the great instruction that you bring. And God, we ask for the grace to live it, uh, to make the, the changes in our lives that need to, be ta- that need to be made, Father, that we might turn away from sin and have victory over sin so that we might bring you glory, Father, as we live it out in front of a, a lost world who looks at us and says, what is different about these people? Father, give us that testimony in this community that people will look at us and see something different. We'll see a people who, who love one another and who love other people outside of their group. And Lord, we just thank you for all that you do with us, and we just give you the glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.